The Cappuccino Podcast brought to you in association with Tactical Solutions. For all your tactical solutions, check them out at www.tactical.co.nz. It's that time again, so grab yourself a cup of joe and get ready for the Cappuccino with Constable Brian. So, my guest today on the Cappuccino podcast is Jennifer LaSalle, hailing from Quebec in Canada. She joined the RCMP in 2001. She was posted to British Columbia doing patrol duties there. Um, and it, but in 2004, she goes to Ontario, uh, for most of my New Zealand listeners, that's the other side of Canada, and starts her career in close protection. In 2007, she joins the Canadian Prime Minister's protection detail, and she's still there today. In 2021... She gets deployed to Malawi, Africa, as part of a United Nations peacekeeping missing mission, I should say. Uh, I guess probably her most important role in life is that she's a mother to a daughter and she's a fellow All OK ambassador, uh, so a huge mental health advocate also. So, Jennifer, because you just told me French was your first language, it's, it's a very big bonjour uh, to the Cappuccino oh, podcast. Sure. Uh, well, that's about it. Uh, yeah, that's about as far as my French goes, really. Um, <laughs> okay. I play, the first initial thing is we play a speed round dedicated to Keanu Reeves because Bill and Ted, he's John Wick, yeah, blah, 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 you know, and he's a nice guy as well, from what I hear. Best police movie of all time is what, in your opinion? Ooh, uh, training Day or Departed. Oh, there you go. Okay, yep. Uh, yep, the gangster element. Who's your favorite author? Author. Mm, honestly, right now, I'm... I'm Reading everything, Jocko Willing. There you go. I'll yeah. go with Jocko Willing. That's all I'm going to do is, and you'll get this if you're a Jocko Willing fan. Good. <laughs> if normally we'd be um, filming this and recording this in my patrol car, uh, so I turn up at your place of work. Obviously, the ocean's a bit in between there, so it's a bit tricky. What would be what? Yeah, what would be your coffee order if I said, "Hey, Jen, what's your coffee order?" It is straight black. Oh, it's oh a God. lady after my own heart. Um, what is, what's your guilty pleasure when you're not at work and you're away from everything? What's, what's your guilty pleasure that if uh, some of your workmates found out, they'd go, are you serious, Jen? Yeah, um, I don't want to admit this, but probably reality TV, like The Bachelor and Bachelorette. That's all right. Please don't judge me. No, no, you're good. No, that's fine. No problems. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, do you collect anything? No. Um, I used to when I was a kid, but yeah. not anymore. So you grew up in a very small provincial town in Ottawa. What does your childhood look like? Because if I'd said to you when you were a child, hey, Jen, you're going to go on and do all these amazing things internationally, you and probably your family would have looked at me like I was crazy. Yes, they would have. Um, so I grew up in a small town outside of Ottawa uh, called Buckingham, and uh, there was 12,000 people. Um and it's funny you ask that because I have thought about this later on in my career where just sitting in awe and thinking never in my life I would have thought I've, I'd be in Timbuktu, you know, like I was in Timbuktu for a year. So just, I think everybody would have been surprised and no idea I would have gone that path. Yeah, because if I'd said to you that you were going to be at the King's coronation one day, 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's a story, another story. So you went to school. Did you play any sports at school? Yes, I played uh, basketball all through high school, um, badminton, baseball, hockey a little bit, um, but now mainly golf. Nice. The sport. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you become a program analyst, even though. Yeah. And I like. You, you and I have spoken before, even though you said I didn't want to do that. How, how did that come about? Was it sort of I should do an adult's job or what was the story? Well, so again, growing up small town outside of Ottawa, Ottawa being the, um, the capital of Canada, but also the main government uh, city in Canada. Um, my dad was a public servant and it was like a safe bet to go into something along government lines um i wanted to be a police officer but my parents were a little reticent to me yeah, yeah, yeah to say the least um so it was i wanted to do um i wanted to join the rcmp but they were more like do something safe right and at the time it was all computer and so i took a course became a programmer analyst I kid you not, I would cry every day going to work because it was not what I wanted to do. It was boring. I couldn't see myself doing this for the rest of my life. Yeah. So one day I'm like, you know what? Nope. I am not doing this. Not for the rest of my life. And that's when I switched path altogether. Um, and when you joined the police, obviously you said that you wanted to be part of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Um, for New Zealand listeners who aren't familiar with uh, Canada's sort of law enforcement system. Uh, they have the federal police, which is like the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, as well as their local uh, police, which would be something like the Toronto Police Department or the Vancouver, sorry, the Toronto Police Service uh, or the Vancouver Police Department. Um, what made you go towards the Mounties, Jen, rather than just the normal local police? Um, so in Quebec, we have um, our provincial police also, but the way it works is you have to do three years of uh, police foundation and then from there try to get a job in a police service and then you go to the their training academy. At that point, I was a little bit older than people coming out of high school. I didn't want to do the three years of police foundation. Um, so um, the quickest way in to police force was through the RCMP because uh, you don't have that to do that three-year program. Um, so that's why I decided on the RCMP, the Mounties, right away. Um, if that hadn't worked, I would have gone the other route, but uh, it worked out and I'm super grateful for that. Here you are still. All right now, I've got to ask you these questions because for a lot of my listeners, their only experience with Mounties is from that awful tv program due south right yes. yeah so, so yeah i can see you roll your eyes it's like oh here we go so you don't own a husky do you i no, i do not so, yeah. and can you ride a horse no i'm terrified of horses. there you go perfect that's all good yeah so it's just one of those you know typical stereotypical things and i think um as i've often said in a couple of other podcasts with some people from the rcmp i think when new zealanders come to canada they think that there's going to be a Mountie on every street corner as well. But your famous Surge uh, uniform, obviously, is a real big uh, thing for the, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. I've heard from some other Mounties that I know it's almost impossible to bend over in, and it takes forever <laughs> to 
to get actually get the, the creases right and the boots shined and everything else is that a stock standard is that a firm yes from you um yes and so it's very ceremonial right yeah, the, yeah, that red yeah. surge is ceremonial and um we take great pride in it yeah uh, so yeah. there's a lot of hours going polishing the boots uh, yeah. the belt um but as you grow older sometimes it gets a little tighter yeah yeah um, yeah yeah, yeah. So you're all good. yeah. <laughs> the breach is um yeah it's almost impossible to bend your knees they're just so tight but yeah. it's you know it's great pride though when we do get to wear it usually yeah. it's not under great circumstances, circumstances yeah um but it's always a, a pride to be able to wear it yeah uh now you get posted to british columbia doing patrol uh, which is a bit of a, I'm guessing it's going to be a bit of a culture shock from where you've just come from. Over in New Zealand, we say every police officer has at least 10, 15 great war stories. What was one of your hairiest moments when you were on patrol? Um, so, so just to like go back a little bit, yeah, coming yeah. from my little town, um, very, um, it was almost like shell shock coming out of like this small town into like the big, great world mm -hmm. out there and just the the pure geography also right like you, you've been to the british columbia you've seen the mountains yeah. where i'm from there's yeah. no mountains so like <laughs> just being there it's like oh my goodness this is huge um and I, I grew up very shy very very shy so for me to put on a uniform and go out and assume that role at the age of 22 or 23 at the time um was big like um so just going out in the the world of policing at that age uh was a, a eye opener uh but as i'm just trying to think um <laughs> i think one of the the stories i guess it was a shots uh fired call or mm -hmm. someone heard gunshots and they gave us the address and it was way up in the mountains where our radios basically didn't work um and we knew who lived in that uh, area and uh, gangs and stuff so we knew it was probably a legit shots fired and i was going up there and i was by myself in my police car um our radios stopped working and this is pre-cell phone if cell phones wouldn't have worked either um so i felt so alone and that that moment and like coming out and being met with the owner of the residence i was like oh here we go like yeah. i don't know what's gonna happen now but hey it all worked out well here i am today so that's all yeah good. that's all good uh and that made me laugh when you said you know this is pre-cell phone era uh to give you some idea and to make us both feel really old i had a uh rookie the other day asked me about how we managed to get around when we didn't have gps in our car and I managed to go to my bag and pull out my map book and say, <laughs> yes. this is what we used. And she's like, that's really cool. But what happens when you go really fast and you need to go around the corner? Because, you know, normally the GPS says and 500 meters turn left. So I got the map book and basically turned it around and went, it goes like this. And she's like, oh, yeah, I should have figured that out. Yeah, anyway. Uh, and you yeah. stop and you're like, I think I passed this. Yeah, 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 yeah. If you get lost, <laughs> ask a police officer. They're bound to know. Um, yeah, so... But so there was obviously a huge culture shock there moving from your small, and like you said, when you go to somewhere like British Columbia, you see all those mountains and the snow and everything else. Um, I do have lots of 
New Zealand police officers who struggle at the thought of how the hell do you police in something like minus 20 or minus 30 or minus 42 or something else like that. So just as a really brief, if it is a really bad snowy day, um, most of the time you're going to be in your car and it's going to be mostly vehicle collisions or like you say, um, on the odd occasion, you're going to get call out. So yeah, it's not like you're freezing to death, but yeah, it is, it's certainly different. That's for sure. So while you move and after you've, you've moved from Monterey, you go to British Columbia, you start to get an interest, I'm guessing, in uh, what you guys call CP, close protection work. Um, what brought that about? Did you see in the line of fire too many times or what? <laughs> Uh, no, so um, at the time in British Columbia, I was uh, married to another RCMP member, and this was uh, not long after 9-11, um, so Canada started their own um, air um, marshal program, mm -hmm. so it was a priority for Canada, um, so he got posted uh, into that field, and I followed, um, but I didn't know anything about the work the RCMP did in Ontario because um, we don't do general policing in Ontario. It's a federal division. So I didn't quite know where I was going to end up. And they offered me close protection. And I'm like, okay, what do I do? <laughs> and uh, so the, my first day at the office, they sit me down and they're like, watch this video. I'm like, okay. The video was called uh, Bullet Catcher. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, I think I get it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <All right. laughs> yeah. And uh, so, you know, initially I, I was just driver for a few um, uh, VIPs coming to Canada. And it was also in time when um, SARS was a breakout. Um, so it's kind of like no one was visiting Canada. So my start in the close protection was kind of slow uh, just because of the times but then um, you know became driver bodyguard and um, anybody visiting Ontario uh, we would be assigned to their protection um, in Toronto uh, this again dating early <laughs> yeah. 2000 yeah. Um, there wasn't a whole lot of females in the program um, so anytime a female dignitary would come to uh, Ontario, I would be assigned as uh, the bodyguard. So people like uh, the Queen of Sweden, um, presidents and prime ministers of Latvia, Ireland, um, just a bunch of people, which was, it was great to work in like, like just the bigger um, picture of the world yeah. stage, you know. And from there, it just uh, kept Snow, you know, going up. <laughs> yeah. So was that like, was that a huge adjustment for you to make after being on patrol? Because uh, I've seen some of the planning that goes into protection work and um, I have an interest in it as well. I've got a few friends that do it here as well. Um, but I don't think the average patrol officer actually realizes all the background work that goes in behind the scenes. Um as well as, and you know what patrol officers are like, they'll see something and it's like, oh, I've got to go and deal with that. Whereas your, uh, obviously your primary is your most important thing. It's not the fact that there's something else going on 500 meters down the road. Um, so was that re a really big adjustment to make? It was. And it's funny because when you're on patrol, you're wearing the uniform. So you show up somewhere, people know who you are and yeah. expect 
something from you. Um, in close protection, they don't necessarily see you as a police officer. So even dealing with the public is totally different from one to the other. Um, there's a lot of politics and um, international, um, well, I, there could be international incidents if like, you know, uh, not everyone's on the same page. So there's a lot in the background, but it, it's a different mindset. You can't just walk in there and be like, this is happening. This is, you know, it's yeah. a different kind of, and you're not really policing. You're almost, well, not almost, you are a hundred percent making sure you don't have to police, right? So yeah. you're trying to make sure everything's in place prior to uh, the visit happening. Yeah. Now, I'm not going to say New Zealand's a hick town because it's not. Uh, we do have electricity and we've got the internet. That's how I can speak to you. All uh, right. <laughs> but in New Zealand, you can still see the prime minister at the petrol pump pumping his gas. Uh, in fact, a couple of my colleagues were sort of advised that we shouldn't really call the prime minister mate when we see him at the petrol pumps a few years ago. But is that the same case in Canada or is, have things become a lot more sort of uh, tightly guarded? Um, he definitely does not pump his own uh, gas. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There, we're with the prime minister 24-7, yeah. um, whether he's in town here in Ottawa or anywhere else in the world. Um the Prime Minister's protection detail will be there, um, depending on the country. Uh, other our partners uh, will provide uh, security, also close protection security for them. Um, him and his family, actually. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you might see him in town. Um, you know, having dinner at the restaurant or doing activities with his family. He's very. Um, he doesn't shy from doing stuff, but no. he will never be by yeah. himself um doing yeah. that it's yeah. mandated by the government and there's no option for him yeah and i had to say ours isn't either but on the odd occasion they do sort of go wanderers um you and i both understand uh close protection and often talking to people in multiple countries about close protection one thing they're kind of unanimous on is uh being just sort of a face in the crowd and being anonymous is a blessing that most of us don't actually realize we have in our own lives would you kind of agree with that i mean uh for you for some of the people that you've uh, done close protection work for and i've done guards at different things as well i don't think people actually realize what it's like to be not followed but basically you've got to be on 24 7 and even just going to the bathroom and washing your hands if somebody comes and stands beside you at the sink and goes hi how are you how's things you can't sort of say just leave me alone i'm having a bad day yeah, exactly. Um, like I said, we're with them uh, 24-7. And honestly, I would probably get super annoyed yeah. if someone with me 24-7. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it's we are there with them, um, especially uh, in public areas. And we don't try to, like, blend in 100%. No. Um, we're not, like undercover we're definitely not undercover um but we also don't wave the flag that yeah. we're there so it's like a mix of being there making sure um people know that it's not free access we're there to protect him and yeah. there's a lot of uh, case laws and stuff like that that uh, gives us the power to make sure he's protected um so but yeah sometimes we look at him and we're 
like, oh, he must be so annoyed with us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> he yeah. sees us every day. Yeah, yeah. Um, I got to ask you, how painful are selfies? <laughs> well, so I was um, on the Prime Minister's detail in 2015 when Mr. Trudeau was voted in. I had previously worked with our old Prime Minister, which there are two polar opposites. Mm -hmm. um, so the first, um, I'd say the first few months of uh, the selfies, uh, that was all new to us because the old prime minister did not do selfies. So it was a lot of uh, adjustment and uh, on the fly decisions for us. It is um, exhausting uh, for yeah, us because yeah. the people are so close to him and you know, they'll get super excited and take their phones out quick. And for us, any quick movement is like, oh, you know, what's yeah. happening? Yeah. So it was a big adjustment at the start. Uh, but it's still now we've got uh, a routine um, and we've got our processes in place so that we can make it smoother and more um, safe and secure for him. Yeah. But yeah, it was a big adjustment. Uh, now, I'm going to ask this question. If I had said to your dad, uh, when he said to you, no, look, I really don't want you to be a police officer, Jen. If I had said to your dad, you know that one day uh, you're little girl and you're not little boy, and he's, you're like a, a, a redwood compared to me. I'm the original Smurf. Um, if, I had said, <laughs> if I had said to your father, do you know that one day your daughter is going to be looking after the Prime Minister of Canada? What do you think his reaction would have been? He would say over my dead body. <laughs> <laughs> um, although they were so against me joining the RCMP, and, and like they were supportive, but like any parent, you know, uh, scared. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. They are so proud, and um, it's, especially my dad. It's funny because every time I'll see him, he'll be like, "Guess who I saw?" And he'll tell me. He's like, and then I told them that you're doing this and you're doing that. And they're super proud of um, where I've gone and what I'm doing. And it just makes me happy that, you know, even though they're scared, they're still proud and super supportive. As they should be. That's all good. Now, one part of your life is that most people, um, they see, say, see your Instagram accounts and some of your social media and everything else. And they assume that you are, living the life of Riley, so to speak, and that you're having such a great time on vacation because you do get to go to some fantastic places. Like I said before, you went to the King's Coronation, uh, you've been to Timbuktu and all those different types of places. Do you think that a lot of people actually don't realize you're working at the same time? <laughs> yeah. So I, yeah, it's funny because my aunt one day is like, oh, you travel so much and it's so exciting to see where you're going and how long did you spend in this location? I'm like, I was there three days, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> long enough to like prepare event and then like leave. Uh, so yes, we do go to a lot of places and it does look like I'm world traveler and just on yeah. vacation, but often it's uh, long days, very short turnarounds, um, you know, long flights and, it's we don't get much downtime when we're um, working. That being said, there's places I've been. I'm like, oh, I need to come back here on my own. So yeah, that's good. I've experienced it a little bit, and I'm like, definitely want to come back. So I do some travel uh, personal, but most is uh, work related. Now, fame's all 
very long days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Famous or relative, uh, but in your opinion, who's the most famous person you've met? Probably, um, well, Prince Charles at the time. But, but yeah. um, that was years ago, but, you know, many celebrities. I've uh, protected Bill Clinton. Like, yeah. so... Yeah, like I, I said, know. it's all relative. Like yeah, one person says, oh, wow, and some somebody else will go, oh, yeah, they're not so famous. Yeah. <laughs> do you have your um, do you have your travel bag pretty much good to go now? Okay, having done it so many times, could you literally, I'm guessing you have some type of mental list where you go, yeah, I got this many pairs of socks, I got this many pairs of shoes, boop, and we're done. Yes, well, it's funny because if you go upstairs my house in the guest bedroom there's a suitcase in there that's always almost um full but yeah. there's always like, the the necessities in there that if we need to leave tomorrow well i just put my my clothes and my kit for uh, for work yeah um but like stuff like toiletries and my sound machine i need a sound machine to sleep so it's always in there uh, so <laughs> There, there is a suitcase already, almost but, already. So now, I'm going to ask you, what's the one travel accessory that you can't do without on any trip? My, my sound machine. There you go. For sure. Yeah. Um, to play white noise. Yes. Yeah, there you go. Hotels, and usually we're like, so when they give us our rooms, uh, either we're close to the command post where a bunch of members will be working overnight, so they're talking, um, or near the elevators, so hear the elevator going up and down, so it, there's a lot of noise um, in hotels, obviously, so for me, I need the white noise, or else I'm up all night, and I'm no good or no use to anybody if i'm super tired yeah i'm, I'm not gonna mention the word cranky i wouldn't be that rude all uh, right so, <laughs> cranky, yeah, no. yeah i know yeah i know yeah um you've been an instructor at, on several close protection courses as well and also a driving instructor too for close protection i'm gonna ask you this and you can refrain from answering if you want what's the one thing that lets most potential cp sort of recruits or rookies down on the course you being a chief instructor on that course what's the one thing that most people sort of go not very good at but before we get the answer to that question let's hear from jono at tactical solutions wanted to talk about one of your favorite edc bags brian the rush 24 2.0 it's been redesigned with a padded laptop compartment and a few upgraded extras it's part of the rush series with four different solutions to choose from come check them out at one of our tactical stores in auckland or wellington or online at store.tactical.co.nz? Um, it, it depends, honestly. Um, everyone has their uh, strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, we we do spend a lot of time uh, with them because it's they're long courses. The mm -hmm. close protection one uh, is a few weeks and the driving also. And we don't want to set people up for failure. So if they're... Uh, weaker in one aspect um, we spent a lot of time um, with them but that being said I could spend 48 hours straight uh, you know helping someone drive some people just aren't yeah. good drivers right yeah. so like you can help as much as you can but sometimes close protection is not for uh everyone and 
you know, we've seen people struggle with just being tasked for several hours at a time where in the real life protection, you might be up at 5 a.m. and go to bed at 1 and you need that mental uh, toughness and um, resiliency to, to, you know, go through to be successful in the real world. And sometimes we just see it uh, on the course and we're like, even if this person is successful on the course, it might not be for them. Um, so sometimes we have to look at the whole picture. Uh, are they struggling on the driving and the close protection and the uh, planning and the bodyguarding? Like, are they like barely passing everything? And then mm. we have to make the decision of that, you know what, um, it's not for them and it's okay. There's yeah. plenty of other options out there and sometimes just close protection is not for everyone. Now, as an instructor, and I've I've done this myself with courses I've instructed, but uh, I think after a wee while as an instructor, you actually get the ability to spend sort of five or 10 minutes with somebody and go, this person's probably going to be quite good. Have you got that ability now when the course starts to basically sort of go, you know what, I'm going to ring fence this group of five or six people here. I think they're probably the deal. I mean, you don't go in with prejudices, but you sort of say, I think they're probably going to make it. Yeah. Um, and, and it's funny because the first day, just the introductions, uh, you get a feel for like first impressions and um, not that everything's based on first impressions, but then you see them interacting amongst their other peers and then you see them in a scenario or even just how they pay attention to your instructions are they engaged or are they not and and I think for me personally and I'm just talking for yeah, myself yeah. not the other instructors but when I see that confidence not cockiness but like that confidence I know you know what even if they struggle they'll you know, overcome wherever. And so for me, the confidence um, is a huge part because if I see someone that is lacking and is self-doubting um, everything, that's where I see, I make the difference of like, yeah, you know what, they'll be good and there's going to, the other will struggle a bit. Yeah. Now being an instructor, I'm going to ask you this $64 million question. If your daughter comes to see you and that says, hey, mom, as you would say, we'd say mom here, but uh, I need some driving lessons. How are you going to proceed? Would you go with it or are they going to an instructor? Uh, well, I, I would, would first <laughs> say, come to me, not your dad. Yeah. So that would be <laughs> yeah. Um, But she already has come to me and she's 15. So next year she, she can get her driver's uh, license and here in Ontario and she's so excited to be driving and uh, we've already talked about it and uh, yeah I uh, 100% 100% will uh, show her a few things <laughs> nice yeah make sure you have a black coffee beforehand so also now now you've looked after and protected to name but a few like you've said before uh, you've been there with the British Royals have been there Prime Minister of Ireland, Prime Minister of Norway, President of Latvia, President Clinton, the Queen of Sweden. Now, we know that you're not meant to have any favourites. A police officer remains impartially impartial, as my old senior sergeant would say. Uh, you're, not, you're not here for your opinion. Um, but has there, been, yeah, yeah. has there been any one person that's been like stood out for you personally? Somebody that you've sort of gone, you know what, 
if I'd had the time and you weren't who you were, I may have said to you, hey, why don't we just go down to the local coffee shop and grab a coffee and just have a chat, one person to another person? So that might be, honestly, and I'm not just saying this because I'm here now, but I would say uh, Justin Trudeau, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, he's super nice to us and very personable. Uh, but I think on the international scale, um, the Queen of Sweden was amazing and super nice. Her detail, uh, people with her coming from Sweden, also very nice. And so it was a, a good, enjoyable experience. And, you know, even like she was telling me about um, Dancing Queen, uh, the song from yeah, Abba. Yeah, yeah. Everywhere we went, the song would was playing and uh she's like did you know that they wrote that uh song for our wedding and she was just like telling me about it and so she was very nice i enjoyed working with her that's all good now i'm gonna ask you this justin trudeau's favorite hockey team is the montreal canadians isn't it he's from montreal he has to he has no choice yeah that's right that's right (laughs) i just thought i'd i'd note it as a calgary flames fan so i get to cheer even louder next time i'll tell you right now you attended the coronation of kings charles recently what was that like? Because that must have been a minefield. I know we're not going to go into specifics with security and everything else, but what was that like as a CP officer? That must have been, you've got uh, almost every head of the com- Commonwealth there. You guys turn up. Is it a logistics nightmare or um, is everybody pretty well organized? Like you say, you're not in uniform. You've got uh, local protocols on the ground and you're also dealing with local police. So how do you, how do you get through that? So for the coronation, um, my duties for that was site security. I was in charge of the hotel mm-hmm. um, where he was staying. So I didn't get to participate in any of the um, ceremonial swearing in or anything. Um, but just being in London, um, I think everything went really, really well. Like mm-hmm. it was a well-oiled machine. Um and I think maybe they were prepared for that because the funeral of Queen Elizabeth had just happened a few months prior. So I think they already had a whole lot in place where they had just gone through something similar. So it was really good. And even working with the, the local um, police force there, um, it, it was easy yeah. to be there. Um, that being said, just being there was very emotional. Yeah. Um, you'd you'd walk outside and it was like positive and joyous um, moment. And it was just like, I'm getting goosebumps right now just thinking about it because, you know, it was like flags everywhere and everyone was there on a good note and they wanted to be there. Um, you know, walking around at night, it is London. It's a prime um location yep. or event for something terrible to happen mm-hmm. and knock mm-hmm. on wood it didn't so you know uh, at the end of the day it was successful but it was so emotional just being there for something so major you know like it doesn't happen no. very often no, no, uh, not yeah. in recent history so it was uh, it, it was a great experience for me yeah. Now, being part of the Close Protection Detachment, you're still part of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, aren't you? Yes. Okay, how does that work? Do you get detached? So do you get uh, reassigned to Close Protection Work or are you still part of, uh, because like you said, you're, you're still part of the uh, RCMP. 
can they reassign you somewhere else? But yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Um, so let's take uh, the Olympics in 2010, um, which was in Vancouver. Um, so the RCMP, along with many other partners, are planning that. So a lot of close protection people stayed in the close protection roles. Uh, but those that weren't being used in close protection were reassigned to go do security or policing. So the RCMP is still a whole. Um, if you're a member of the RCMP, you're still a police officer. You're still, yeah. they can call me tomorrow and be like, Jen, we need you to go to um, Northwest Territories because we've got something happening there. And so be it. Um that being said, tomorrow, I could be like, I don't want to do close protection anymore. I want to go do general policing again in BC. And that's an option also, right? So if you're with the RCMP, there's so many options um, on both sides, my my side and their side. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I hear yeah. you. So uh, excuse my ignorance here. I'm going to call you a law enforcement veteran, even though you're only 27. But I've got two questions for you. All right. So the first is, what's the biggest issue you've faced as a woman in law enforcement? Um, I would say it would have been at the start of my career in the early 2000s. Um, and, you know, we'd go to calls and even if it was my file and I was the primary investigator, they would be talking to um, my male partner. Mm -hmm. um, so just getting into... Um, well, getting into policing, you know, when women were taking um, bigger roles and not just like the admin roles and stuff like that, that was a challenge. And, um, and I would say even joining um, the close protection uh, in 2004, um, even in 2023, the average is 10% of female officers in court mm. protection uh, in Canada, anyways. Yeah. And so just, you know, there's still a little bit of a um, boys club. Uh, so just trying to be part of that, I guess, and just, you know, earning that respect and that knowing that you deserve to be there, I think was the biggest challenge for me. Yeah. Thanks. What do you think has been the best tool in law enforcement that's been developed in your career and you can't say the, the internet the, yeah the best tool you can't say the internet uh but the best thing that you've seen since you've been in the job and you've gone you know what that's probably yeah amazing i'll give you mine for me it's the phone okay uh just the fact that you know we've gone from literally having to take polaroid cameras around um and the such like to everything's on on our duty phone I, it can deploy me. It can send me somewhere. I can do background checks on people, that type of stuff. So, so that's mine. What would yours be? I was going along the same lines, uh, technology, you know, like from like having to, you know, be like, Jennifer, are you available for a call and pulling over and yeah. taking your notebook and be <laughs> yeah, like, okay, yeah. give me the address. And, and to a few years later, the entire thing just coming down on the computer in the car yeah. Um, so technology like that, um, just the easy access to, and I think it made our job 
um, a lot better because you get instant access or instant information on um, where you're going, who you're dealing with and stuff like that. Um, so technology has brought policing way ahead, yeah. but at the same time, it's, it could be um, just as bad on the other side. Yeah. And, you know, and I'm just thinking um, when we see in the news interaction with community and police, we often don't see the full story. And, right. and you know, like, and I've got into many discussions, um, <laughs> you know, and I'm like, well, I don't know what the story is because we don't know what the background on that individual is on that police officer. We don't know anything about anything except for the actions. And so I think technology has leaps and bounds ahead, but at yep. the same time, um, it, it's it's hard. It, I think it's harder to be a police officer because every time you do go to a call or you're, you're in the public eye and it's, you know, I just hope that police officers get or, or make their decisions on their instinct, on their training, and not because, or hesitate because of fear of something. And I don't want um, the police officers to doubt themselves and their aptitude uh, because of fear. Yeah, uh, like I always say to people, you know, when I started in 1996, we used to have people assist us at roadside accidents. And now we have an awful lot of people just film as they go past, which is speaks a lot about humanity, not just policing. Uh, so speaking of humanity, uh, in 2021, and I'm going to have to look down at my sheet to get this all right, you are deployed to Malawi, Africa. It is the eighth largest country in Africa, population 22 million, roughly. Gold and salt exports, predominantly Muslim nation, uh, French speaking, which is, I'm guessing, one of the reasons you got the job. Uh, you go to the city of Timbuktu. Yes, there is actually a place called Timbuktu. Uh, that's right. And, yeah, that's right. Yeah. How did that all come about? Because that doesn't happen by accident, does it? It's not like you're sitting around doing CP one day and they go, hey, Jen, let's send you to Timbuktu. Um, so how did, how did your application go and how did you find out about it? So when I joined in 2001, the RCMP, there was a lot of RCMP members being deployed with the United Nations. And I always was fascinated by that. And for my entire career, um, so every year you have to um, submit a learning plan and a career interest form. And every year from the start of my career, UN peacekeeping mission was on that form. So it's not something that just came about one day. It's always been in my mind. Earlier in my career, I wanted to do it, but I didn't have enough service. I was too young, too junior in service. Uh, then I had my daughter and I couldn't even fathom like leaving <laughs> for a year um, and leaving my child. When COVID hit, I was working from home because I had an admin job at the time. I, I, I was kind of bored. I'm like, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. And I, I spoke to my, my supervisor and he's like, well, I know you've always wanted to do a mission and they are looking for female members to deploy to Africa. And I'm like, oh, like I almost had slipped my, my mind. So first person I called was my daughter. Well, my my ex-husband, yeah, my yeah. daughter's father to ask. He's like, you know, you've always wanted to do it. I support you 100%. Then I went to my daughter. 
asked her and she's like, okay, well, you know, so I explained I would come home every six, eight weeks. And so everyone was very supportive, scared, but supportive. And um, I put my name in and I got, uh, uh, they asked if I, I wanted to go to Mali or Congo. Uh, there was a few mission and I'm like, just send me wherever you need me. And they sent me to Mali. And the, the thing is, when they're like, you're going to Mali, I'm like, I don't know where that is. Yeah. Like, I know it's in Africa, but yeah. I know nothing about it. Um, so prior to deploying, you get the three-week course on, uh, you know, the history and everything. And and it's funny because when I was a kid or a teenager, or a sassy teenager, and my dad would say, where are you going? I would always say, I'm going to Timbuktu, you know, <laughs> just just to be a little, you know, pain yeah. in this butt. Uh, so when I got the actual deployment of Timbuktu, I'm like, dad, guess what? And he's like, <laughs> you're lying. I'm like, no, I'm actually going to Timbuktu, which again, I didn't even know it was in Mali, but so yeah, I spent a year in Timbuktu. Yeah. Uh, now I, that's what I definitely going to have to read. You were part of the United Nations uh, Integrated Multidimensional Stabilization in Mali. Uh, when you were in Mali, you were a training coordinator and an instructor uh, providing training to the local police force. What was that like? Um, that must have been culture shock and then some. For everyone. Yeah. Um, so, yes, my job initially started as community policing, but uh, I soon went into the training and it was, I still like, I'm so proud of having done that because you could, they don't get the training they need as police officers. There's no um, infrastructure for that. There's no money for it. So the United Nations would come and give them like tools and the training um, on everything from arrest procedures to taking statements to gathering evidence, everything. And you would see the progression from the Monday to the Friday and to me that was the most satisfying and um just I felt like we provided something and you could see their skills improve in like five days um that being said the first day I showed up in class what class I have to say class yeah yeah that's okay yeah. quickly because it was legit a um, open garage in the middle of like the desert so um but I show up and all the local police officers are 20 to 25 um and then there's me coming from um you know well yeah. they thought it was Europe but yeah. you know North America and so and being a woman there was I was the first uh female instructor and at the start, it's like they didn't know if they should be listening or like taking any advice from me. Yeah. Um, but I, honestly, I still talk to or get messages from a bunch of them. And, you know, they still they still thank us and say, you know, I still put in practice what you taught me. And so it, it was a culture shock, but it was so, so rewarding. And yeah. I'm so glad I did it. Yeah. yeah, I think that was the first photo I ever saw of you was in your UN beret surrounded by a whole bunch of children from Malawi. And I was like, yeah. this is somebody I've definitely got to have a chat to uh, for a podcast. Now, when you're in 
uh, Marley, COVID raised its head. What was that like? That must have been pretty nerve-wracking. Were you all a little bit sort of worried about what would happen? And how did you cope with it all? Because I've been to uh, Pacific Island countries where um, they have said, you know, when COVID hit, we had nothing. So was that a bit of, a bit of a nerve-wracking time for you? Yes. So I got to... Um, we first arrived in Mali. You get a one-month or four-week um, induction training. And from there, you go into... Uh, the region. So I got to Timbuktu in November of 2021. And at the end of November, I got COVID. And I was so scared because mm. the infrastructure is not there. The equipment is not no. there. And I'm like, I didn't know how, it, how COVID would affect me, yep. um, you know, because I had never gotten it before. And I was so scared that what if I need to be on a ventilator or, you know, or need like the, the care, it's not, yeah, it's not there. And so the fear of like needing care was more than the actual COVID. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, I went to the, the medical clinic on base and the doctor told me I had to stay in my room for two weeks and I'm like, wow. I have a bed and a toilet here. I'm like, yeah. how do I get food? So thank goodness for my Canadian uh, uh, colleagues there. Uh, there was four of us. So the three of them really, um, you know, would bring me my food. And they even snuck a dumbbell from the gym so I could work out in my room. <laughs> We're not telling this. We yeah. did bring it back. Yeah. <laughs> but it was missing for two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so it was scary at the yeah. time. But at the end of the day everything worked out yeah now our favorite when you were there was there any time that you thought because i mean i know people have done u.s peacekeeping missions to um the pacific islands up here and they on the odd occasion they say you had this moment this realization that <laughs> you and your buddies are it you know you can't radio for backup and even yeah. if you do they're sort of at least maybe three to four days away uh, when you had those moments was it a matter of just sort of taking a deep breath focusing on the mission and moving on or how did you cope with it i'm like how much time do we have now <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yes that day definitely did happen um and i'll try to be quick in my story but yeah, no, so it was a good friday and um i we're all still in bed it's like six o'clock in the morning and i hear the air raid siren going and i'm like oh that's early for practice i'm like oh it's friday at 6 a.m this is not a practice and by the time my brain realized this the bombs or the rockets were already falling in the um in the camp and uh once the rockets stopped eventually you know i had all my gear go into the bunkers and then i stood there and i was looking around and i'm like okay well luckily for us canada has equipped us with like the best equipment you could ask for and i'm like i'm ready for this like my mindset was like bring it on if you're gonna attack the base bring it i'm ready but as i looked around i'm like not everybody had the same equipment um and that's when i realized okay well it's us against them right and yep. even us i'm like it's gonna be like you know the countries that are equipped 
that are going to have to take control and take over. So definitely there was a moment where, and I cried and I cried that night and I'm like, it's us. Like it's, it's us. And, but threat is real. Like the, the bombs actually did like, you know, and there has been ambushes on the UN convoys. And so I'm like, the threat is real. The threat is there. Yeah. We're a target and it's us. And, you know, and I'm like, why am I here? Yeah. <laughs> why yeah. am I here? Yeah. And then, you know, we go on patrol and I see the little kids running around and with their soccer ball. And I'm like, this is why we're here. Like, you know, and so I had to remind myself and, uh, you know, it was a lot of self-reflection and, you know, taking just deep breath and saying, okay, no, we're here for them and let's, let's do this. Let's do our best. Yeah. Uh, so 30th of June, 2023, the United Nations has, has decided to end M-I-N-U-S-M-A mandate and withdraw. Uh, what are your, and I know that you've got to remain impartially impartial here, like I do. Uh, what are your feelings and thoughts on that? Uh, having been boots on the ground, do you worry for some of the locals that you've interacted with, Jen, or not? Oh, 100%. Um, yeah. and, 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 you know, like we visited schools and, you know, uh, orphanages and stuff and yes i i'm terrified for the um Mayan population and even now like the minusma is not even out a hundred percent you still stay in contact with them there's not much more that you can do than that is it worry for the people that you've been with no and and with the the mission pulling out of mali i'm like terrified for um the population but the police officers that I now know personally uh, and I and even all the civilian members that worked at the the base you know at the store at the the mess or our um, um, linguistic um, people it's just that's their life and yeah. they're they don't get to leave they no. they need to stay there and that's like super scary and I fear for them because, um, yes, the Malian um, forces are trying to um, push back the terrorists, but it's failing miserably right now. And it's very scary to know that um, the UN pulling out is, you know, there's, it's not positive. It's not a positive um, outlook and it's scary and sad. And, yeah yeah just you, heartbreaking yeah and i'm guessing you still keep an eye on it every now and then when you can every day yeah i bet every yeah day. all right so you changing the subject you are a huge mental health advocate uh you're a fellow all okay ambassador let's be honest that's how we met what sparked your interest in mental health particularly for law enforcement officers and service personnel initially like years ago um i was talking to uh colleagues and we had gone to a um, motor vehicle accident months before, and um, there's three youths, um, they all passed away. And we were talking about that accident. And one of the uh, police officers clearly was not dealing um, 
you could see he was affected mm -hmm. and we weren't as affected as he was and i was like what's happening right and this is before um you know mental health was uh like so open and ptsd you know and so to me it was always like being there for my colleagues but then at the same time i realized hey i'm not the same person i used to be um whether i'm i'm hyper vigilant or like i i it changed me and mm -hmm. i would go through periods of I'm not okay. I'm tired. I, and then people were talking about mental health and PTSD. And, and then it's like, you know, when I saw all okay, and they're like, no, let's talk about this. Let's be so open. And I'm like, yes, let's, we have to talk about this. And, um, you know, like I've seen people struggle and, just like pushing people away and not just isolating themselves and it's scary because you're like no like don't go but it's hard to like bring someone back and so I'm like I'm in and let's promote open discussion mental health awareness let's talk about PTSD and mm -hmm. even um I was at work um a few weeks back and we're talking about PTSD and I, I said, you know, it's funny because when you talk about PTSD, people automatically picture uh, what you see in movies where it's like, you know, someone going rogue and, you know, like <laughs> yeah. all hell breaks loose. And I'm like, no, like for me, my PTSD is social, social isolation. I just want to stay home in my comfort zone. And, you know, it, so it doesn't have to be extreme, um, but you know it, it can be so like it's let's talk about this and what is it to different people let's not assume that ptsd means you're gonna go rogue and you know like do yep. stupid stuff yeah so for me like it's we need to talk about it and you know i'm so glad that um people are starting to open up and uh businesses like all okay are promoting uh that discussion yeah what so are important. you yeah, you're not wrong. What do you do? Everybody's got something different for me, and you're going to laugh at this as a Canadian. Uh, I come home because the hockey games are on at the most ridiculous times here. Uh, yeah. Sometime between three and seven uh, in the in the afternoon. So sitting like like I was yesterday in 28 degree heat, I'm watching uh, the Calgary Flames play. For me, that's my thing. I just I watch a game that hardly anybody in New Zealand watches. I relax. I know the players. I've been to this dome, blah, 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 et cetera, et cetera. I get to have my sort of one period of chill time and I'm all good. Uh, what do you do for your mental health on a daily basis and your physical health? I mean, every cop says, yeah, I work out. Well, I hope every cop says, yeah, I work out. Uh, yeah, you and I both know that there are a few that don't. I go to the gym every day yeah, and I'm pretty sure you do. But what do you do for your mental health and your physical health? I, I like to like just pull back and... I, and I'll be honest, I listened to this one, I guess, artist or station on Spotify and Amazon, but, and honestly, that one station got me through uh, my mission, and um, I listened to their songs and speeches, and it just makes me, like, ground myself and be like, 
okay, you know what? Bad day or I'm feeling like this, but here I am. Let's change it. And like it, so I will take time and even I might just go in my bedroom and lock the door and be like, give me 15 minutes. I need 15 minutes just to like connect. Um, so sometimes I'll go in my bedroom and lock the door or I've got a infrared sauna. I will go into the sauna for that 20 minutes listening to that one station just over and over again and like just ground myself charge up and then i'll be ready to go yeah that's all good and who knew that you're a big kiss fan like i am detroit rock city's helped me through many a bad time that's all i say about it all right yeah just leave it there let everybody's imaginations go wild jen uh okay so lauren <laughs> Law enforcement has certainly changed in the time that you and I have both been in service. What do you think that's something that something that we could be doing for all of law enforcement that we could improve uh, mental health for our law enforcement officers, first responders, and service personnel? Like you're saying, a lot of us are talking a lot more, which is a great thing. A lot of people are listening a lot more, which is an even better thing. Um, but um, how do I put this? And I said, I see there's lots of different groups trying to do stuff. Um, and they're great. They're, they're kind of doing stuff, but they're not really doing much apart from the, hey, are you, um, are you sort of, can, are, can we help you in some way? And there doesn't seem to be anybody sort of substance behind that. Um, what is, what's one simple thing that you think we could all be doing as, as cops, as first responders, as service personnel to help us all with our mental health? Well, and last week, this week or last week, uh, the RCMP came out with a, a new initiative. Or So every year or three years, depending on your, the section, you have to do your medical um, testing and uh, exams. But now they're implementing a mental health component to this. And I'm super happy to see this because when I went on the mission, when it came back, it was mandatory to have a uh, psychological follow-up which was at one week, one month, three months. And um, I think it should be mandatory. Mm -hmm. um, even just going and sitting and sometimes you talk and you're like, oh, I didn't even know I was doing this or I didn't know that it affected me. Um, so for me, do a mandated um, follow-up for law enforcement. I think uh, it's necessary. Um, especially uh, what are the uh, stats? One in 19 police officers struggles with uh, mm -hmm. some sort of mental health. So just to know and encourage that, that dialogue. And um, when you see someone that's not doing okay or that you're questioning whether they are, bring it up. You have to ask them because you will notice someone detaching from themselves most mm. likely or overcompensating on being happy. And, you know, so if there's a change in their behavior, that's a, a flag and to either um, bring it up with them or someone else. Um, I, I think we have to look out for each other and I think to respect each other also and not judge is, um, what we need like to support each other not wrong now two questions for you last two questions i should say if senior police officer jen lasalle meets baby 
Jen LaSalle at coming out of the RCMP. You guys have depots there, I think, uh, or a training base. And uh, baby Jen comes up to senior police officer Jen and says, what's one piece of advice you'd give me for my law enforcement career? What would you say to her? Okay. Um, my trainer, when I came out of the academy, um, at one point, he said, when in doubt, go left. And to me, it was always like, if you're at an intersection, go left, because that's yeah. right is easy. And and I was talking to him not long ago, actually, and I'm like, to this day, I still use that, but not while driving. It's like when you're faced with a decision, left is the harder turn. Mm -hmm. Always take the harder turn. Push yourself. Get out of your comfort zone. You can. So for me, I'd be like, you will be scared of taking that decision or making that decision or taking a new job or applying for a new job. Whatever. Don't let fear stop you. And when in doubt, go left. There you go. Perfect. Uh, unlike Jack Reacher, who always goes right, I think it is. But <laughs> that's, uh, anyway, yeah. So, uh, but that's when he's hunting suspects. So you're all good. Uh, final question, eulogy question for you. It's the question we always ask. Uh, the day of reckoning has come for you. And in a sort of bizarre twist of fate, you're lying in your coffin, but you can hear people delivering your eulogy. What would you like them to say about you? It's a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah, it I've is. Had, yeah, I've had everything from the bears are on me uh, <laughs> to uh, he was a really good bastard, and uh, we're all going to miss him quite a bit. <laughs> Oh, well, I hope I hope they would miss me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd come back to haunt him if they're like, oh, yeah, yeah. goodness. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would want to say I want would want them to uh, think I did my best and tried to um, treat everyone with respect and um, just be a good friend and a good person and yeah, just loyal and honest. And I hope that's how they see me and with or at that, least lions again yeah yeah of course yeah with that <laughs> it is a big merci beaucoup uh au revoir to jen there you go those are my other two three words of fridge um thank you very much for taking the time i know it's busy thank you so much thanks for listening but please do constable brian and i a favor and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on the next cappuccino podcast real people real stories